The introduction to a sermon is always a, a unique piece for me. Sometimes it's the last thing I fill in. Sometimes it's the first thing, kind of is the catalyst. But uh, this was an odd week because I have this, I, this idea that has forced itself in, and I keep trying to force itself out, but it keeps making it back in. I even have two introductions here because uh, I was like, there's no way I'm supposed to do this one, uh, but I ended up lining through the other one. So, hang with me. Um, many of you have probably experienced something like this, and I can't remember all the details, but this is generally true. I was in a public restroom. Uh, this is the part. I was in a public restroom not so long ago, and um, in walks this dad with his daughter in his arms, and uh, she's crying like, I'm tired and I need a nap, cry, which has a unique sound, many of you know. And the father is taking her into a stall to talk, right? But he's using the handicapped stall because, as you, many of you know, the hand, you have better elbow action in the, in the handicapped stall. It's a little bit bigger to kind of deal with the issue. But what was strange is I'm in the bathroom and, and I've been that parent before, where you have to haul the kid into the restroom and set things straight so that you can go back out into public. But it was one of these times when I realized the bathroom, which is supposed to be private, is not. It's a public space. Because all of a sudden I was like in participating, at least as a listener, into their business, which was going on in the handicap stall, um, you know, and her, the girl crying and the father correcting and all of this happening, and there I am. I'm telling you what I'm doing. It was in a bathroom. It's private. But it's, it, it was this private slash public experience that was uncomfortable for me. And I was uncomfortable, not like angry, uncomfortable for them and uncomfortable for me. And, but what I experienced was... Um, a changing perception as time went on. At first, I had this spirit of alarm um, just because of kind of the noise and anger and frustration that walked into the bathroom. There's just this, just this immediate response to that of, I don't like what's happening. And then, you know, the, the, the child is crying and frustrated. And the good part of every kind of adult parent kind of listens up to hear, like, is this on the up and up? You know, is this quality discipline, or is, 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 it, is it over the top? And, and, you know, there was some frustration involved, and my, I had some angst, and I went and washed my hands, but I kept listening. And, 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 you know, I had all of these kind of bad vibes going on just, just because of what happened. And then I, as I hear the conversation, I hear something like this. I hear the father say in the most gentle tone, you just can't treat your mother like that. And we can't go out until you say you're sorry. You know, and the girl, but I want my such and such, and I want my such and such. He says, I'm sorry, that's just not the way it happens, you know. He explained in such a calm, godly way. I don't, I don't know if he's Christian or not. It's immaterial. He's, he's explained in such a good, healthy, gentle way the way the child needed to be. And his foot was down, and, and he was willing to kind of endure this embarrassing moment to correct the child. And I, you know, I, I'm glad I took a long time washing my hands because, like, by the end, I kind of left the bathroom very satisfied. 
with... This is why I almost didn't do it. I knew I would step into something. You know. And see, sometimes this is what happens. Sometimes we take a snapshot of something and it's negative or it's positive. We take a snapshot and we take one perception from a snapshot. This is a highlight of a moment. And it may or may not be consistent with the entire episode. And we, we need to take a look at the entire episode. And Paul's going to do that this morning. And, and uh, maybe we could uh, go into the lesson with this, this in mind. So let's read. We, we should be in the 13th chapter. Last week they were on Cyprus. Barnabas and Saul were on Cyprus. They leave, and John Mark as well was attending them. They get on a boat and they go to Turkey today. So they go right up from Cyprus to southwest Turkey. And I'll read uh, 13 through 15 real quick, and we'll talk. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, If you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Now, something's happened here that is worth just just noting. First of all, I I mentioned last week just in passing, but it's true that when this missionary journey started, uh, whatever rank structure was present, if that even, maybe a a strong phrase like that can be used, it it was Barnabas was up front and Saul was following. It was Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. I think it's said three times on the way into the story. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. When you get to this account, it actually says, Paul and his companions. So, something is changing. I don't know whether it's the fact that they left Barnabas' home island and they've now gone to Paul's home area. Like whether they've intentionally switch leads because of their stomping grounds. I don't know whether it was the fact that Paul last week, uh, you know, called down blindness on this man and Barnabas himself was like, oh, like I'm dealing with a heavy hitter and has slowly just kind of migrated towards the background. I'm not sure what's happened, but that's a significant dynamic that is, we're watching it take place right now and it follows through for the rest of the ministry of Paul. Never again is he second chair whenever he's somewhere. We also see that John Mark leaves. He departs. Now, it's, it's said very nicely here in this text. It says he returns to Jerusalem. Later on in the text, a few weeks from now, you're going to find out that Paul says he deserted them. In fact, Paul refuses to go on mission with them. He says, that guy deserted us. So something happened. And there's a number, of, a number of other smaller things. You know, you know, John Mark is an attendant. He's a servant. He's not really Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark. He's a young man, we think. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. But he is kind of an, an attendant, or he's um, a journeyman kind of along with them here. But the, the only thing I want to bring up is we're not, and a lot of scholars will write pages and pages about what they think happened. They think Paul had malaria and he had to go to the highlands and they think that John Mark might... We don't know. We don't know what happened. 
And I think the Bible uh, doesn't really want us to know what happened. I think there's a sense in the text that encourages me that says, you know what, something happened, but the gospel continued to get preached. Like I can think of, if, if you imagine these are real people, these are real people, there must have been some level of drama that just happened here that we can, you can imagine might have ended a missionary journey prematurely. I can think of a lot of just, just the chemistry of, of our relationships here. I can think of situations where you could set off and you could go to Cyprus and then there'd be drama and you would just say, you know, Cyprus was enough. Cyprus was enough. And you go home to Antioch and you say, yeah, we did Cyprus because of the drama. But that's not what happens here is they deal with it and, and it's, it's so subtle uh, because the preaching of the gospel is in front of them. And uh, that, that, I think there's a lesson in there for us. Let's keep reading. Oh, by the way, last week we talked about the motherhood of ministry or mission. These kind of ways it happens. They find a sensible starting point. Right? They, then there's this pattern where they preach the gospel and there's kind of initial response and then there's resistance and then the power of the Spirit works in and God responds to the people who God wants to hear, not necessarily the ones we planned. And, and that those, all those things, just watch the story because it's, it's present here. Okay, let's read 16 to 25. Standing up, Paul mentioned motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testifies concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No. But he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now this is a very brief and succinct history of the Jewish story. In essentially two paragraphs, he gets from Abraham all the way to King David. And then he mentions Jesus. He jumps to Jesus. And I was reading this week uh, some people making commentary on this section. And one of the authors made a very useful comment. He said, what Paul's doing in this very succinct history is He's highlighting moments of God's grace in like the sermon. He's saying God was gr- full of grace here. and God was, He was highlighting graceful moments because he's about to kind of land the whopper of Jesus. And he's kind of 
graceful moment, graceful moment, graceful moment. That's what he's doing here in the text. And at first I, I heard that and I really liked it. And I, oh, I said, oh, that preaches. I'll take his stuff and I'll make it mine. Um, and then I thought about it some more. And something about it that I couldn't put my finger on bothered me. And I, I think this is it. I don't think that Paul is highlighting moments where God is graceful. I think Paul is telling the story of God, and God is graceful. And there's a difference. Paul is not selectively going through the scriptures, pulling out the three times that God has been nice to the people, and kind of leaving out the 300,000 times that God's either wrathful or impatient or tired or angry or asleep or not present or bored. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I'm going to just give you a few highlights. For, uh, you know, the, the graceful hits off of God's 20 albums. Here's the four songs of grace. That's not what's happening here. What Paul is doing is he's telling a succinct, brief, though even-handed story of God's relationship with mankind, and it is full of grace. And it's very different. He's not misrepresenting God, and he's not showing a one-dimensional picture of God. He's, he's taking the story of God and his people, and he's stepping really back. He says, i got two paragraphs on this. So he's stepping far enough back that it's, it kind of dwindles down to two paragraphs. He tells that even-handed telling of it, and we look and we go, wow, God is full of grace and mercy. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God is full of grace. When we tell the story, people will hear a story of God being full of grace. But sometimes I think we open, the, we open this book, especially in the front half. You open it and you stumble into a story, Job, uh, case in point. You stumble into a story, like I stumble into a bathroom where there's something going on. You're like, ah. You know, it's God's yelling at a kid in a bathroom stall and the kid's crying. And you're like, why? What's going on here? Is, you know, as though we sometimes, we don't think of the whole book as even-handedly full of God's grace. But we have these, these areas that we avoid or we don't trust or we don't like because we don't see a graceful God there. And that makes us feel as though he's not full of grace. And I'm here to say, if you could step back and listen to the whole scenario. If you could, like I did in the restroom, if you, the first moments were frustrating, but if you stay long enough to hear the whole story, you'd realize that even that was graceful. Even as frustrating as that was, there was mercy in it. And I'm here to say that no matter where you are in the word of God, if you step back far enough away that you can put bookends on the story, you will see a graceful God. God is always working out a story of mercy on his people. He chose the Hebrew people, is what Paul says. He says, God chose you. What's the implication? Mercy. God made you prosper in Egypt. Mercy. He says he brought you out of Egypt. Mercy. He endured you for about 40 years, Paul says. 
That's more mercy. He overthrew seven kingdoms and gave you their land to inherit as yours. That's the mercy of God. He gave you judges until the time of Samuel. Mercy. When you called for a king, he gave you Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Because you asked for it. and Because God is merciful. And then when that went south, it says, Paul says, and he removed Saul. And installed David, son of Jesse, of whom is written, Here is a man after my own heart. The whole story, the story of God and his people, is a story of a merciful God approaching a people in need and showing them mercy. Are there hard times? Yes. They were tired in the desert and they ate manna. Absolutely. But if you back up, they were not in Egypt. And they were being led by the holy God of the universe. It's a story of mercy. Do you think of God as full of grace? I hear people uh, sometimes say they like Jesus, but God, it doesn't sound like that. You're all smarter than that. It's wordsmith better. I really like, you know, the mercy and the grace of Christ, but the Old Testament God, that's how it sounds as though there is this difference between the ancient of days and the ancient of days. But the Old Testament God, ah, what that really means is you don't know the story in an even-handed way. God has always been graceful. God has always been merciful. And Jesus Christ is the surprising exclamation point of a merciful God. He is the, the, he's the trajectory, he's the end point, he's the high point, he's the climax, but he's not unique. He's not unique from God, he is. John 3.16 doesn't say, for Christ so loved the world that he gave himself. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's a merciful God who's always telling a story of mercy that precipitates itself into the life of Jesus Christ. I think the reason that we are so surprised by the mercy of Christ is because mercy is such a rare thing to see among people. We dole mercy out so sparingly that it's always surprising for us to see it. And I think the mercy of Christ is surprising because it's so abundant. It's so abundant. Have you ever thought about how deep and wide the fountain of mercy is that falls from Jesus Christ? There's some of you who have not received that. I mean, you believe he died, you believe he's living, you believe the stories, but you haven't received the abundant grace and mercy that just falls from Jesus Christ. His unconditional love for you. His unconditional value for you. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy to his people. I'm not done, but I would like to pray. Can we pray? Lord, I, I want to lift up this morning um, those here who may feel uh, forgotten by God or maybe under the thumb of the Lord, mistreated. 
not loved. Lord, I pray that they might uh, be, have their eyes open to see that even hard times in our life are part of the story of God's mercy. Lord, to the person here who feels that they're ugly, I pray that they might just receive the love of Jesus this morning. And to the person that thinks they're stupid or wicked or talentless, Lord, I do pray. I pray your spirit would fall on them and say that the whole cause for Christ's advent on earth was to bring them the mercy of God. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's keep reading. Yeah, I gotta keep reading. Verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now there's a shift in emphasis here. One moment he's telling this succinct and brief story of God and his people, the story of mercy that is kind of unfolding in the story and it ends at Jesus. And then the, the rest of the text here, the rest of the sermon, actually is almost isolated completely on the idea of the crucifixion and bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's on the crucifixion and the resurrection. You know, he's making a case that he was killed unlawfully, though he had done nothing wrong and there was no accusation that could be justified. He was killed. It says he took his body off the tree. They laid it in a tomb, but God resurrected him. There's those who followed who have seen it, and they continue to testify about it. And even the scriptures testify about it, that the scriptures spoke of one who would come from David who would not see decay. And he says it couldn't have been David because David's body is in the earth. 
and has been given itself to dust, it must, in fact, be Jesus Christ. He gives this long conversation about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Paul always does this. No matter what his starting point is, he's going to end at the crucifixion and the resurrection. He goes to Athens. We like to talk about Paul in Athens because in Athens he was hip with his language. He says, oh, you people, there's, you, I see in the courts there's an idol to an unknown God. He begins to tell this story about this God's a God who made heaven and earth and it's very earthy and everything. And you know how he ends that sermon? Talking about the resurrection. He ends the sermon on the issue of the resurrection and it says when the people heard resurrection, they scoffed. The message of Christ, the message of God's mercy is not complete without the conversation of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is, not only is it the climax of God's mercy, but it forces for us, it forces us theologically to embrace ideas about ourself and about God. You see, because we, we want, very much in our lives, we want God who gives mercy just like a pick-me-up. Like, like a parent would give a child mercy. You know, if we help them buy their first car, then they won't be in debt. That's mercy. Right? Or you know, a, a cop who, I know you were going 60 and a 35, but be safe. We want that kind of pick-me-up mercy, you know? It's just a a teacher who sees something in us and gives us a little extra time. A boss who says, I'm just going to give him this chance, but let's see how he does. We all want that kind of mercy, and a lot of times we want that kind of mercy from God. That is not the kind of mercy that has come from God. The kind that has come from God is mercy that we need if we are going to have eternal life. And it's mercy that cannot come to us except at the sacrifice of his own son's life. The crucifixion keeps that in us. When you keep the crucifixion close, you're constantly reminded that there's something that you have done that required the death of the Son of God. It is the great humility and the great joy of God's compassion at the same time. Something you have done required that the Lion of Judah would climb into a sheep outfit and go and live among the wolves and get taken down for you. And the resurrection reminds us that he is righteous and powerful and that all who would place our faith in him would be able to have great hope that we would receive eternal life. He was not a well-meaning man who just thought good of the populace. He was a perfect and righteous holy sacrifice who was received and was considered worthy by God and was raised on the third day. And through that, we have hope. The, the story doesn't always have to have all the churchy talk. If I meet somebody on the street, I'm not going to hit them up with the substitutionary atonement and the propitiation of the blood of the Holy Lamb. I'm not going to say any of that stuff. I, that stuff is, that's eyewash. But my story is informed by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which means that if I'm giving them a story where they can walk away going, thanks for the pick-me-up, I'm good now, I have failed. 
I'm not saying, if my goal is to encourage them, I'll encourage them. If my goal is to give them the fullness of the gospel, they need to leave in need of Jesus because Jesus was crucified for our sins and he was resurrected on account of his righteousness. And that is absolutely central to who we are. Paul starts in various places. He ends at the crucifixion and the resurrection. All right. We've run out of time, but I'm not done. So (laughs) we'll read a little bit more, and I'll get abrasively practical here in a second. Okay, 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed... Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against Paul. what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring the salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, particularly, like, what exactly happened here? What specifically what happened here is that the Hebrew, the the Jewish, and even some of the God-fears in the synagogue, they came. They came next. The next Saturday to church, and somebody was sitting in their seat. Right, their worship environment was turned upside down, and that overrode any kind of attraction they might have had to the message. And I, I this has sent me to thinking of, no matter how hard I try, how connected I am to the environment of worship, like. Today we've gathered to worship the invisible God. To be outside of our bodies for but a time. And yet, the thermostat matters. The comfy seats matter. The style of worship matters. Your place to sit matters. The bathroom cleanliness matters. It's innocent. We cannot escape the environmental need that we call worship even though it is not. I mean, step back from this picture. What just happened in this town was essentially the whole town has responded with curiosity about the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Holy Son of Jesus, God named Jesus Christ, and they want to know more. Who would not pray for that? If you were Jewish, right? Christianity is not Christianity yet. It's still Jewish. That's why they start in the synagogues. If you were Jewish, you might be able to say, in a week, the whole town's becoming Jewish. That would be the experience. But because 
their environment is changing and, and their conditions are changing in such a way that and not the message of God is what's shaping their experience. I see this as being a constant obstacle for a faithful church. Is the knowledge that we have a message of a crucified and resurrected Savior and the fear of losing what we like. That sits before us. And there's no way that we can have any growth model I'm not talking this growth model or that growth. There's no growth model that's going to not tamper with that. That what we like here is an impediment to the invisible God. The environment here, if we like it too much, if we hold on to it too tightly, what is a good thing becomes a bad thing. It, what, it, this thing that God is overjoyed about, the fact that we can come here and, and worship together, this Thing, this environment, if we hold on to this, it can immediately become an absolute impediment and a sinful, wicked act before the Lord. I mean, just imagine if the whole town showed up this morning to hear about Jesus Christ. It would be exciting and frustrating. And it's our attitude. I'll close with this. Uh, your life, our life as a church, what I hope and my pray is, is that we don't have graceful highlights, but that a general brief examination of our life would tell a graceful story. That we'd have low points and high points and dark moments and great moments, prideful moments and humble moments, but that if someone backed away and reduced your life or the life of this church into two paragraphs, that it would in fact be a story of grace and mercy that would be told. Not that they'd have to go fishing around to find a few good stories, I hope your life is not like that. But rather that if they reduce it to the cliff notes, would your life still tell a story of what God has done?